as part of my interview process, I got a beta invitation to Gmail. Like how ubiquitous is Gmail now? At the time, it was like, you can have this invite and you can share it with 10 people. And it felt so cool. I remember telling my family and friends, I just interviewed with Google. I could give you a code for Gmail. And none of them, they were skeptical. They said, that thing that has ads, somebody must be reading my email. From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine. We're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective, principled business leaders who think globally and act ethically. And now, by all means. A spur-of-the-moment decision to do a campus interview with Google changed the course of Mary Grove's career. Instead of going to law school as she had been planning since high school, Mary went to work for the tech giant the very year it went public. Her first assignment was working on the Google IPO. Mary's curiosity and ambition led her into business development, negotiating early stage product and technology deals for Google worldwide. She served as founding director of Google for Startups, supporting entrepreneurs in more than 100 countries. But she also had that entrepreneurial itch to go out on her own, to a place few in Silicon Valley think of as a hotbed for startups, Minnesota. Mary became an investment partner with Steve Case's Rise of the Rest Seed Fund, focusing on Midwest ventures. Recently, she launched her own venture fund with Brett Broll. It's called Bread and Butter Ventures. It's a firm that invests globally while leveraging strong corporate connections and industry expertise in her adopted home state. Think ag tech, health tech, enterprise software. Mary is all in on Minnesota. Yes, I am a very proud, I used to joke that I was a Minnesotan by marriage, but now I think maybe I can just drop the by marriage part because, you know, we're to stay and it feels really exciting. I think coming in as a sort of outsider, insider, meaning I had knowledge of, of Minnesota, of course, through my husband, Steve, through our large family footprint here and through our work with our nonprofit, Silicon North Stars, which, you know, we've run together since 2013, knew about some of, of some of the tech ecosystem here. But being on the ground now for coming up on three years, it's just a, a tremendously exciting place to be on numerous levels. And I, I feel strongly that, you know, in many ways, this is the best kept secret. And so if I could be a part of helping, helping to build and further advance and create that next chapter and mobilize more external resources from other parts of the country, or perhaps even globally to come in and help, you know, invest in, look at and elevate what's happening in Minnesota. It's very exciting. So your husband is a, a native, Steve Grove, who has a rather high-profile position as well. When you and, and Steve met, was that at Google? Yes. So Steve is definitely a, a proud uh, Minnesota native. He's from Northfield, grew up there, and, and it's been just a wonderful sort of anchoring part of our life. So we met, um, gosh, exactly a decade ago. So we met a decade ago. We were both working at Google. Steve was at YouTube at the time, which was, of course, uh, he joined just just uh, just after the acquisitions, after Google acquired YouTube. And we met on a business trip. That actually was a business development trip in Baghdad, Iraq, of all places, even though we both, of course, worked for the company in the U.S. And so it was an amazing time to be 
at the company working on emerging markets. We had a lot of very shared interests and shared goals with our work. And so that's uh, that's how we met, actually. And, and we kind of started in New York, moved to Silicon Valley for the first chapter of our relationship, got married there, had our, our twins there, and then decided, you know, what would that next chapter look like? And I think the combination of both the pre- professional and personal opportunities of, you know, you talk so much about, you know, where's the future of the innovation economy going to be written? And keep in mind, this was back in 2000, you know, 17, 18. And there was, there was some talk about innovation outside of the coast, but I think it was much less a trend as we're seeing now, right? Like during, during COVID-19 in particular, people can't seem to leave these coastal hubs quickly enough. And so it was, um, we did get a lot of sort of raised eyebrows or questions or maybe chuckles even when we made that decision of what? That doesn't necessarily make linear sense, but, you know, to us, it, it very much did. And it was sort of a exciting life experiment. And, and now we have the answer. You were ahead of the trend, as usual. Um, so even before that, Mary, let's go all the way back. Where did you grow up? So my, I was really blessed to grow up in just an amazing family environment, Ali. My parents were both immigrants from Thailand who came here separately, met here, got married. They were both extremely tenacious entrepreneurs. And so they, you know, had had and raised three children here. They started and ran small businesses together for over 30 years. And really, um, you know, they grew up in rural villages in Thailand without electricity. So for them, it was really this pursuit of the quintessential American dream. And we never, you know, we never went without all the core basics, including love. But we also, you know, we grew up in a in a bootstrapped environment. And I remember when I wasn't at school, I was at my parents' office and clinic and sitting under the desk and helping with uh, all of the tasks. It was a seven-day, seven-day-a-week operation to have a family business. And, you know, in hindsight, that was the most incredible upbringing I could have asked for. And it sort of, I always had that view of, like, would it be great to have my, to create your own company or to build your own business? Or, yeah, as my dad always put it at the time, like, be your own boss. And, um, of course, I went on to have several amazing bosses I worked for, but it's exciting to think about that, you know, what, what an entrepreneur can create. That is really interesting. First of all, where were you living? So I actually have kind of had a circular story now being back in the Midwest, but I was born in Davenport, Iowa, because my family was there. My dad is a chiropractor. He was in chiropractic school at the Palmer College in Davenport. So I was born, but they are, you know, warm weather folks. And so quickly quickly moved out to California. So I grew up in San Diego, Southern California, and I ended up in the Bay Area for college. I went to Stanford and then ended up starting my career out there. So I consider myself a California native, but I still have family. Uh, Steve and I both have family in Iowa and Chicago and, of course, Minnesota and Wisconsin. So it's sort of all this uh this is a great epicenter for us as far as family. Sure. Um, it's interesting because a lot of times, uh, particularly with immigrant stories there, we, we hear a lot of guests on By All Means who say their parents just wanted them, you know, they, they were supposed to be a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer. They're supposed to go work for a big company. And that was kind of, you know, the mark of success. But your family really instilled in you that, you know, start your own thing, the, the, the entrepreneurial spirit. That's that's actually a funny observation because while they didn't pressure me to at various times, I remember wanting to be specifically a doctor and then I wanted to be a lawyer so much so. I mean, up through my 
up until the point that I started working at Google, my plan was to go to law school. Uh, despite the fact that, yes, my parents instilled in me, you should be an entrepreneur, you should start your own business, you should, you should be in control of your own destiny for better and for worse. And, and I got to see both, both their failures and their success and, you know, knew the, the risks and the challenges and how difficult it actually could be when it doesn't work out. And so, um, but then I was at Google for a while and my parents came to visit and they were enamored. And my mom, I remember her telling me, make sure you never leave this place, you know, <laughs> now, now that I was at a, at a big company, but they're, uh, you know, they've always been wildly supportive of my siblings and me as far as whatever we wanted to pursue for, for our passion, for geography, for where we wanted to, you know, ultimately live and work. And did seeing them, you know, own a business, which is kind of a 24-7 thing, um, did that seem appealing to you growing up? Or did it make you feel like, I want to just go work for someone else and have my weekends? You know, it, I didn't think of it in that, in that lens of positive or negative. It just, was, it just was the way things were. It was the way life was. And so in, in a sense, I suppose it was it's part of my DNA today, sort of that, that always on, you know, somebody asked me recently, you know, how many, how many hours a week do you spend on bread and butter? And I kind of laughed because I, I'm thinking about it and working on it all day, every day. While I'm also of course thinking about and doing and prioritizing other things, but it's, there's not an on and off switch, right. Of, okay, it's five o'clock or I don't check my email after Friday, you know, afternoon. And, and so it, it is very much that it's just a cumulative part of, how we approach every day and how we think about every day. And I got that from my parents, for sure. What did you end up majoring in at Stanford? So I studied not, not related to tech. You might, you know, people are sort of, oh, you went to Stanford. Did you, you know, did you always know that you were going to go into tech? And, and mine was, was the opposite. I was really passionate about, and am very passionate about international development, about women's issues about sort of economic development. I love, I've just been fascinated by people, by communities, by organizations. And so I studied in sociology and international policy and thought that, that I would go the route of law school in order to work on some of those issues. And so when I was at Stanford, I did a Stanford government fellowship at the UN, uh, the UN in Bangkok actually. So it was a very cool opportunity to go back and live and work in Thailand. Of course I had been there numerous times growing up as a kid with my family, but being on my own, working there, you know, integrating with the language professionally, it was a very, very cool experience. And I got to work on a very important project around anti-sex trafficking in women and children in Bangkok, which at the time, Thailand was the number two uh, hub for sex trafficking globally. And so I learned a lot from that experience, but I also learned that the, the aha for me was there's a lot of ways we can go about tackling those gigantic goals. And technology is actually a great, great enabler. And tech companies are a phenomenal platform to advance this type of work. And so when I ultimately found my, my way at Google and that there was an opportunity to indeed work on those very issues, but at this massive scale with a company whose mission was so progressive, it was the, you know, it was sort of the, the dream come true. So what was your first role at, at Google? And, and how when you're in that culture and you go to Stanford, is it kind of like, is there just like a tunnel that you take that just like shoots you right over to Google? Or how does that whole, how does it go? Maybe nowadays, but this was, uh, this was 2004. And so Google was, you know, 
was a well-known name, but it was much, a much smaller, lesser known name. So at the time, Google, when I joined, that was around employee 2000, number 2000. When I left in 2018, you know, 15 years later, we were over 100,000 full-time employees globally. And wow. so that type of rapid exponential growth. But at the time, I remember because as part of my interview process, I got a beta invitation to Gmail. Like how ubiquitous is Gmail now? At the time, it was like, you can have this invite and you can share it with 10 people. And it felt so cool. I remember telling my family and friends, I just interviewed with Google. I could give you a code for Gmail. And none of them they were skeptical. They said, that thing that has ads, somebody must be reading my email. So just to calibrate <laughs> from a tech, from a product cycle where we were back then. But do you, do you still have that same Gmail account? That's the real question. I do. My, my, it's Himmenkul at Gmail, which, which was my maiden name, Mary Himmenkul. And uh, it's pretty funny. But yes, I, I was on my way to law school was, was the plan as previously. You know, I sort of woke up one day in high school. And with no good reason, decided I'm going to go to law school. And I stuck with that goal throughout high school. I stuck with it throughout college. I applied, you know, took the LSAT a few times, applied. And then it was spring quarter of senior year. And a lot of my friends were Stanford's a campus that, you know, heavily recruited on site. It was, it was Goldman Sachs and Deloitte and McKinsey. All of my friends were interviewing on campus and I wasn't. And I thought, should I be? Should I at least go through the experience, get the experience? Maybe I need to. Uh, maybe I do need to get a job. I don't know. So I went into the career fair and Google had a booth there and they were recruiting legal assistants to work on the legal team. And I thought, this is great because I'm planning to go to law school. What if I went to Google, did a one-year program there, you know, spent a year in the legal team just to validate it. And then I can, you know, hopefully I'll get in I can defer. We'll figure that out. And so were you very That's familiar with – it's hard to imagine a time when Google wasn't, you know, so omnipresent. But, I mean, did you know a lot about Google at the time you were applying? It was – primarily I knew it as a search engine. But yeah. at the time, you know, I was I was a senior in college and we just – again, to calibrate where we were technologically, I had a desktop computer in my dorm room, which I was very among the fortunate to have my own computer – but you brought a physical notebook, you went to the library, you checked out books, you did research in the library to write a 60-page paper. There was no, so, you know, technology was, of course, part of the experience, but nowhere near as ubiquitous. And so I used Google for search, but that's basically it, because the suite of products as we know it wasn't wasn't there. So did you, was the first job in the legal department? Because you decided oh, yes, to stay, in, you, did, you didn't go to law <laughs> yeah. school, right? So back to your question, yes. So my first job, I was hired in as a legal assistant, and I, I didn't know what that meant. I mean, you can plot, you can infer what that means, but what it meant for me was that I was hired as a legal assistant, and that I was staffed specifically on the IPO deal team as we went public. So I joined the company at the beginning of July. We went public at the end of August. And so that, that first... seems like a really good time to get in. Am I right? <laughs> it was a phenomenal <laughs> because we didn't we didn't have you know, we worked with um, with outside counsel and, uh, you know, bankers take Google public, but you, you, uh, you do need in-house people who are actually Google employees. And so I was part of a very, very lean team that got to work 24 hours, 24, seven, seven days a week, live off site um, with our founders, with the executive team in the trenches working on this offering. And it was an amazing experience on many levels. And it's ironic that I'm a venture investor now because I did not have a background in corporate securities and, and 
IPOs. So it was great. It was just, you know, dive off the deep end and learn trial by fire and figure it out. And I was very privileged to have the opportunity. And immediately after we went public was all the public company compliance, figuring out what that looked like. But I spent a, a full year, my first year in the legal department, also had exposures to the other parts, you know, the intellectual property and patent side of the, the group, the commercial transaction side of it. And I deeply respected the work, but I also knew that I, I validated that I wasn't going to go to law school. And hmm. instead, I was I was coming pretty obsessed with what was happening on the product and business side of the company. And you know, one thing led to another. I sat, we sat in cubes in the just like you read about and hear about at Google, these open cell cubes. And I sat next to a an incredible visionary leader named Megan Smith, who at the time was running a team called New Business Development. And it was early stage product incubation partnerships. So think about, you know, the technology and content we need to license to launch new Google products, distribution. How are we going to get them in the hands of users? What are those partnerships like? And so I was very fortunate a year into my time that that um I kind of started moonlighting and, and shadowing. And I I just raised my hand and said, do you, do you need someone to take notes in your meetings? Can I can I join these meetings and can I add, can I volunteer in addition to my job? And that's the type of place that Google is. If you see see an opportunity, want to contribute, you can, and oftentimes it leads to something more formal. And so in 2005, I moved over, joined Megan's team, and I was, again, very fortunate. I was the shared junior resource. So there, the team was, was four senior people who were very experienced in business development, partnerships, product, and me. So I got to sort of apprentice style, learn from, work with, do tons of you know, in the weeds work, but that was the best way to learn. And I, I spent six years in that team, worked on almost every bucket of products that Google has from, you know, Gmail to what's now G Suite to the early versions of Google Docs, Google Talk, all of the social products, which should no longer are Google News, um, and a number of products that never, that you've never heard of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, Hard to imagine uh, our work and our life today, though, without Google Docs and 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 Gmail. It really is. It's amazing. What what did you what got you most excited, Mary? Was it was it the products? Was it the technology? Because you weren't really like a a super techie coder person. Was it all of that, or was it the was it the money and the you know how you build an enterprise of this magnitude? What what was it for you? That's a great question. For me, it was the combination of the intellectual curiosity, which is very analogous to my work as a sort of a generalist venture investor today. It was this ability to be a horizontal layer across Google products, from but from the business side, and to figure out how, what third-party partnerships we need to strike to enable these products, and how will we get in the hands of users? To how do we think about, you know, IP cross licenses with major companies? How do we think about working with industries with whom Google has a combative relationship and finding middle ground. So it was sort of that I've always been actually quite excited thinking about thinking about the business side and structuring and scaling. And I love partnering with everything from tiny startup teams to behemoth corporations because I've been in one and understand a little bit of how, what some of the challenges might be or how to, how to get to, to a common place. So that was, that was one big part of it. And that's analogous to my VC work and that, Every day you get to work with companies 
in different sectors that you not necessarily, you know, you haven't been an expert for decades in. And so you need to be able to go very deep, very quickly, understand what you don't understand, understand what questions to ask, understand how to put together that framework of analysis of, is this a good industry, market, business? Is this the right team? And that's something that I learned early in that framework at, at Google. But the second piece, and this is the piece that kept me there for 15 years, is it is very addictive and compelling to be able to do work, work on projects that immediately have the capacity to impact millions, hundreds of millions, or billions of people. And that scale of, wow, that's, that's the passion for that, the pressure of that too, of, you know, if you, if you, if you have an error, you mess up, the implications can also be huge. And so that's exciting. It's really, it's so, it's an unbelievable amount of um, privilege and responsibility to have. And so that's sort of what kept me there, especially as we started scaling my, my later work there, which was around the, the Google for startups, the entrepreneurship work it was, wow, we could have an impact at scale. And it's hard to walk away from that. So how did you walk away from that? Was it really, was it, was it the personal decision, the fact that you had these twins and, and this call to the Midwest or, or, or what was it and how hard was it to walk away? I'll tell you the, the last part of the Google puzzle, which will help answer that. Is after I spent the six years in the doing new business development partnerships, a lot of that work led me to very emerging markets, which is how when I met Steve in Iraq, it was part of this effort. We were working on a project called the Bottom 20, which was looking at the least, the 20 least connected countries in the world from an access perspective and figuring out a solution that Google could bring to market, both through product and partnerships to try to expand access expand content creation. And the third bucket was around entrepreneurship. It's what can we do to galvanize students, startups, developers to help them create more businesses, come online, you know, ultimately make money um, for themselves and for Google long-term of more companies using the internet leads to more revenue for the company way down the road. So we figured we were onto something. This Google had a lot of different teams organically tinkering with supporting startups and supporting startup ecosystems, but it wasn't organized at scale, sort of top down. And that, that was part of the beauty of Google is you could work on this stuff. But our our leadership team and our, our senior leadership basically said, we we think we should actually organize something here. And so I had they they asked me if I wanted to pilot putting together a program and we we don't know if this is a thing, let's just see. And so I had the chance to leave my current role and Make a, make a small pitch for a small number of uh, headcount and budget to try to build something. And we ended up building Google for Startups, which was is the company's umbrella for thinking about supporting both early stage startups directly, but also startup ecosystems. And so we partnered with, uh, we built our own campuses. We have seven campuses around the world for, that are open available spaces for startup ecosystems, all international. In the US, we partnered with a dozen phenomenal ones, including uh, Fueled Collective, you know, formerly known as Coco, is one of our first partners here in Minnesota. But through that work, we ended up, you know, scaling to over 100 countries. We worked with over 60 leading organizations around the world. We had more than 400,000 entrepreneurs in our network, and that, to me, was the the big aha. Was one, I really love working with companies at the early stage, and two, I have seen firsthand, not just in the US, but all across the country, it's not just happening in Silicon Valley. And so much of the narrative in our industry is centered around Silicon Valley. And so I was I was always intrigued about what could that look like? 
And so it, it was the convergence of I had our our twins were born in 2016. And after I came back from maternity leave to my current role, just thought about, you know, what what could the next chapter look like? And it's definitely going to be related to the startup ecosystem, but possibly a different angle. And so we started thinking about um, I started thinking about going into venture full time and, and making a go of it. And you might assume the more logical thing would be to do that from Silicon Valley, where we already lived and where I had <laughs> been working for for almost 20 years. And um, but I had a, a great opportunity to join Steve Case's team at Revolution. And Steve is you know, a leader I have admired and known for many years through my work running Google for startups. And Steve was a very vocal champion early on of this concept of Rise of the Rest, which later became the name of, of the seed fund, Rise of the Rest Seed Fund. And the idea was championing moving moving cap- capital and investment dollars outside of just Silicon Valley, New York, and Boston. So I was enchanted and am enchanted by that vision. And so, right, so the Rise of the Rest, it started as a bus tour, right? And it's the, the bus that went to multiple cities across the country, bringing in leadership teams to, to see what was happening on the ground. And then in late 2017, um, Steve and the team launched, raised the first fund. So Rise of the Rest became an actual investment fund. And at that point, I joined as an investment partner. So my job was with the other partners, you know, to each find, source, research, then invest in the best possible companies outside of those big coastal hubs and then support them. You know, so it was traditional venture capital. And that's what brought me to Minnesota. That was, that was um, you know, the fund is, this firm is based in Washington, but invests heavily all throughout the country. And so that was an opportunity for me to say, hey, I'd love to do this. How about doing it from from the ground? And so that's what precipitated the move professionally. And then personally, yes, it was this notion that wouldn't it be fantastic to try to just take a sharp right turn in life and be very uncomfortable again, start from scratch, essentially. And Hmm. and, uh, Not everybody thinks that way, especially when they're working at Google. And I hear the snacks are really good on campus. I know now. Now <laughs> I now I cook every day. You know, it's, um, <laughs> but it was this idea that to be a part of this community, everybody says Minnesota is the best place to raise a family, and you know, it's um, we are excited to find out if that's true. <laughs> Gosh, I hope we live up to it. So, so interestingly, it wasn't that that your your Minnesotan husband dragged you back here. I mean, was it really you who had the opportunity or the idea first? What what was Steve doing at the time? So Steve was had been at Google then at that point for twelve years, and he had so he started at YouTube and he started the the YouTube news and politics team. It's always been at this really inter- interesting intersection of politics, technology. And, and news. And so then he moved over to Google proper. And in his last several years, he, he started and was running a team called the Google News Lab, which was thinking about how, how Google helps create the future of journalism um, with the news industry. And so that was, uh, you know, his background. So when we always talked about very much in the abstract, though, could we see a future in the Midwest? Absolutely. But it was so abstract. And so he and he, you know, has a deep heart for Minnesota. And I think we never, um, he, no, he certainly never pressured me at all. And it was actually, it was me, it was my idea. I, I said, I think, I think VC is the right move for me. I think I want to do it differently. I think this rise, the rest is the opportunity, you know, to pursue from a ideological level. And it also is a geographic win for us. And so what, what about this? And so it was a matter of made a decision very quickly. It was 
pretty funny. That's our style, though. <laughs> we just uh, <laughs> we're 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 known for um, making big decisions very quickly. But we decided, and I think it was January, and then we flew out here in March for a three day trip to do some house hunting, and we then we just bought a house very quickly in the middle of a blizzard. So we were like, we don't know what the backyard looks like of the home that we purchased, but we hope it's good. How is it? Did it work out okay? <laughs> it did. Fortunately, okay, okay. We, we chose a wonderful neighborhood. Unbeknownst to us, again, we, we didn't really <laughs> see Steve's from Northfield, but not, you know, hasn't lived in Minnesota for, for two decades. And this was, pri- I mean, Steve didn't come to be the deed commissioner. I mean, this this was before all of that. He did not. No, there, we didn't have a plan around. We just knew that he... He was fortunate to be able to move here with Google, and Google was supportive of Steve running his team remotely from Minnesota. So they said, "Let you know, we, they really um, encouraged us to do it." So we moved here. He worked remotely, remotely for the first year, traveled back to California periodically and other places. He had a very global team, so time zone wise, you know, we we're actually two time zones closer to um, to Europe in some ways. But he spent that first year really learning and just soaking in and meeting with a lot of people because because he hadn't been here for two decades, you know, working here, um, meeting with people in the business community, meeting with startups, meeting with accelerators, meeting with universities to figure out where is the Minnesota ecosystem now and what's the most meaningful way to potentially contribute. And Steve has always, um, you know, been, been a big fan of Governor Walls. He actually volunteered. This is a great story. Before he started at YouTube, he had just graduated from um, Harvard Kennedy School and volunteered on Governor Walls's first campaign for Congress. And so there was that, you know, that fondness and belief in, in the governor from the early days. And so Steve just started volunteering on his campaign is, um, is how things reignited. But then it happened to be a really cool opportunity to to dive in. And so, yeah, it's pretty funny, Allie. We're now sitting here a few years later, both in completely different roles and both very committed to Minnesota. Right. And we haven't even gotten to your current role yet. But I but I have to ask this, jumping around just a little bit. Could you ever have imagined this this year and during the pandemic and especially in the early days, I mean, your husband became like a household fixture. Every day we would tune in to, to watch the governor's press conference, see what was closing, what the new rules were. And there was Steve, you know, help talking about small businesses and helping. Could you ever have imagined that being the D commissioner would become such a public facing position on you know on such beyond the, the 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 group that understands that job and and that role in the business community no we cer- we certainly didn't expect any of 2020 right and i think the when steve took the role at the beginning of 2019 you know minnesota was experiencing this blissful period of record low unemployment in fact the the very reverse and a lot of the early agenda was focused around the innovation agenda of, you know, helping with job creation and thinking about innovation, entrepreneurship, a lot of the Launch Minnesota initiatives that that uh, he and the team launched in, in 2019. And so, no, but I would say that, you know, I am extremely proud of the work that Steve is leading and the opportunity that he has to serve in, in this difficult time. And I do know that I've seen him up close for the last decade in running building running, you know, massive organizations around the world for Google. And it's, it's really, uh, it's neat, frankly, to see a lot of those operational and leadership skills translate into a completely wildly different environment. But it just, it kind of reminds me that, you know, it's, it's about the, 
the bones and the infrastructure and being able to navigate and, and apply that framework to new settings. And, you know, one example of that would be uh, as a leader, you know, he's really focused on, on measurement, accountability and transparency and how are we going to, how are we going to track measure, but also communicate out. And I've seen a lot of that through the daily work that, um, that he's doing there. And so I, I just love seeing that the crossover of some of that private sector DNA going into government. Sure. So so the more time I spend with with movers and shakers like you and the more I learn about about business and entrepreneurship, I think, gosh, I really should have gone into the VC world. That that really would have made a lot more sense than There's journalism. There's still time. There's still time. <laughs> okay, but but help me understand, Mary. I mean, when when you have Google on the resume, I I have to believe it's a little easier. But but I think a lot of people would love to be say, yeah, I'm going to be an investor. I'm going to find the next big startup. How do how does one actually break into that? And basically, does it require having a lot of money to to get into that field? It's a great question. I think there's no linear path is the frustrating answer. It's not a satisfying answer as one might hope. But if I look at people who've been in the field, who are in the field, who I admire, how do they get there? There's a few, several different sort of outcomes that I've seen or trajectories. One is, you know, you you have the sort of classic finance background, came up in Wall Street, worked in banking, made an adjacent turn into, into venture as an asset class. That's one that, that we see. One that we see where I came from, from Silicon Valley, most commonly, I think, is the operator model or, or the entrepreneur model, where you've got some senior leader or an executive at, you know, at a tech company, early employee at XYZ, big company, you name it, Facebook, Google, Uber, um, who's had deep operational experience and can relate. And the, the operational experience, I found, can actually be in any sector. It could be you know, I'm deep in product management, or I'm deep in these technical areas, or I have great, you know, marketing and, and PR acumen, and that's going to be my my superpower that I bring. And the other is the serial entrepreneur who's had phenomenal success, literally been through the journey, done it, and is equipped to do it. So that's those are the paths that I kind of have seen. Um, mine I would describe as the operator kind of adjacency of you know I built in grew large organizations at Google, but I also, the, the actual nature of the work was working with hundreds of thousands of early stage companies. And you start to just see a lot and learn a lot and, and see, analyze the data behind it to know what could help make these companies successful. So you spent a couple years with Rise of the Rest and got to work on with different um, ventures in in various parts of the country beyond Silicon Valley. And then you made the decision, now here, now committed to living in Minnesota, that you were going to start something new with another investor who lives here. Tell us about that. Yes. So after the first couple of years here, and Minnesota moving here honestly was a bit of an experiment, right? It was it was let's give it a couple of years, let's see how it goes. And there are many answers to that question. The biggest one being, I felt such a strong sense of the community here. There's there's so much to appreciate. There's so much opportunity. There's so much talent. And it's also so early, meaning I see so much opportunity. And I, I kind of became obsessed with this notion that the corporate infrastructure that we have here in Minnesota, the, the Fortune 500 backbone, the industry strength, it's truly unparalleled in the country and it's our best kept secret. And my observation is nobody is really organizing around that that infrastructure at scale from a venture perspective. And I think that's the opportunity of a lifetime. And, you know, Brett 
Brill, my partner at Bread and Butter, he's he's been here. He's not, he's also a coastal uh, transplant. He's from Florida. Been here for eleven years, and he has been super um, deep in food and ag tech, and has built you know an incredible tech stars program, Farm to Fork. Also run his own fund called the Syndicate Fund since twenty seventeen, and so we've known each other for four years. We actually met through. Silicon North Stars, um, the nonprofit that Steve and I run. Brett was one of our very first people in Minnesota to volunteer and coach and mentor our students around entrepreneurship. Should we take just a tiny aside? It's a good a good spot to you. You and Steve started Silicon North Stars when you were still in Silicon Valley, right? Yes, we actually started it with no intention of moving, and the, the idea was we wanted to team up and do something on this outside of our our Google work that was something together. And the idea was we have strong roots in Minnesota. What if we built a bridge between where we had roots and where we lived at the time, which was Silicon Valley. And so Silicon North Stars is a nonprofit whose mission is about educating and inspiring young Minnesotans, specifically from economically underserved backgrounds towards futures in tech. And we believe that that's through experiential learning, that's through seeing people uh, who look like yourself in, in the industry and, and really role modeling, giving them a hands-on opportunity. So in 2013, we, we just bootstrapped this nonprofit the first year and said, what if we recruit a cohort of rising ninth graders? We fly them out to the Silicon Valley. We give them a week-long immersive boot camp where it's the best of. So we go to large tech campuses of Google and Facebook and YouTube. We go to college campuses like Stanford and Berkeley. We see some high-growth startups like Airbnb and Indiegogo and Lyft. We do design thinking and we split these students into teams to actually create their own startup ideas. And then they pitch at a real live demo day for 300 people. And so we did that the first year. It was magical. It was it was exhilarating and we wanted to continue it. But then in year two, we quickly realized the answer to that question of, hey, we, we need to have on the ground support in Minnesota. When these students return home, they start high school and then what? You know, it can't just be a one week experience. So we began launching, in addition to the summer program, year-round meetups here in Minnesota where the students would go and visit various startups and accelerators and do college visits. So Brett was one of the people who helped us on, on that. But that's the model of the program. And I would say we're so proud of our, our students. We have 120 students in the program. Our oldest cohort are now juniors in college. Our youngest are, of course, um, freshmen in, in high school. and. The coolest part, Ali, is that when we moved here, we continued the program, business as usual, in 2018. It was awesome. But in 2019, we hypothesized that we don't need to go to Silicon Valley to be inspired. We've got all of it right here. And if we do the exact same formula that I just described, just with Twin Cities-based organizations and companies and mentors, the beauty of it is our students can actually be engaged in the flesh long term. So they can get invited to Lunar Startups demo days. They can get invited to you know, um, the mini inno meetups that happen. And, mm-hmm. and so it's really, a, it's neat. So moving forward, we're going to be fully Minnesota, in Minnesota for Minnesotans. That's so cool. What an amazing opportunity for those students. So so meanwhile, that brought you to Brett. And then at a certain point, the two of you start scheming and planning and thinking about your next big thing. Yeah. So when I when I moved here as an investor, you know, Brett and I started working together very organically. We Co- co-lead a quarterly investors meetup together with um, Forge North and Greater MSP. We have done a lot of guest lecturing, open office hours together. I've been a mentor in every one of Brett's Techstars programs. And it's just, 
you get to really know people by working together on these projects across different topics. And it just has been the most natural fit in the world in the sense that for those of you who may know both of us, you know, we're very, very, very similar in terms of our cultures and values, but we're wildly different in our backgrounds. We have almost no overlap. Brett's a, you know, four-time entrepreneur deep in the food tech space. I am a, a Bay Area, sort of got the, the tech big company background. And as far as the the relationships that I bring to our firm are largely from the coast. Brett's are more here in the Midwest, given he's been here longer. And and uh, so that's a really, really cool thing. So we, yes, we teamed up, we've gone all in. And the vision for Bread and Butter is to create- Great name, by the way, we have to just say, Bread and Butter. So you. cute. Uh, tell us the mission. <laughs> well, the name actually is a not, one of the not, it's the two, two reasons for the name quickly, if I can digress. One is, you know, one of the many nicknames for the great state of Minnesota is the Bread and Butter State which I was delighted to hear. Two, we also, we believe that the industries that we're prioritizing, which are food tech, health tech, and enterprise software, those are fundamentally the bread and butter, the backbone sectors in the modern economy moving forward. And so, you know, how we feed ourselves, how we care for each other, how we work moving forward, those will never be, particularly coming out of COVID-19, those industries have been forever transformed as well. And so, that's the, the mission for us is, is about is twofold. One is to find and back and help scale the best companies anywhere in the world that map to the big the big three sectors where we are uniquely equipped to leverage this Minnesota home field advantage to support them after we invest. And our, our vision for the organization is to build a tier one world-class venture firm that is brand name that people from around the world want to come to seek capital not just from our team, but from our state and the resources of our state more broadly. I believe that, you know, we have this this unparalleled opportunity and multi-trillion dollar global industries have such strong roots here and pe- people simply don't know. And so it's really fun to get to spread that message beyond our beyond our state too. So you, you brought Brett's uh, investments from the syndicate fund into Bread and Butter, and now you've already made several investments as Bread and Butter. Can you give us just a little flavor of of the kinds of opportunities you're looking at? Sure. So we did. We we built Bread and Butter on the backbone of Brett's precursor fund, the syndicate fund, which many of our listeners may be familiar with. And so those portfolio companies are fully Bread and Butter. We've made seven new investments together this summer. And that's um, been a really exciting time in the midst of all the challenges in our in our industries and in the world more broadly. I do think the funding market has been hot, 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 you know, red hot um, as far as the quality and the volume of deal flow that we're seeing as a team. And so today we have 36 companies in the bread and butter portfolio, including the, the seven most recent investments that we've done this summer. And it's exciting. We've got... Um, Roughly half, about 47%, are in the Midwest. 26% are here in Minnesota. So we say that people ask, are you Minnesota only? The answer is no. We invest you know, everywhere. But we really do have a goal of being the front door to Minnesota, meaning any startup, every startup who's in town, um, we want to be, we want to meet with you. And we want to help. And if it's, hopefully it's a fit for us. If it's not, we want to help make introductions for you and sort of be that. And so, um we're really proud of the investments we made. A few haven't announced yet, but the ones that have, they range from, you know, Omnia Fishing is a is an amazing local company. They're an e-commerce platform for for anglers. We invested in 
company called TechMate based out of Kansas City in New York. They're doing a um, national play around uh, remote IT support for satellite workers. And it's, it's you know, this era could not be more relevant, but it's a, it's a brilliant strategy we think invested in on two companies that just recently announced both phenomenal teams and missions. One's called Cherry Blossom Intimates based in Washington, D.C. And they're building um, 3D customizable prosthetics for breast cancer patients, which are fully insurance reimbursable. In addition, a full line of intimate apparel to support not just those patients, they're doing, you know, all inclusive, harder to fit sizes. And it's been a booming business because, you know, nobody's thought about having 36 skin tones. And uh, it's really a phenomenal team. Woman, woman led, right? We should say led by a, a, a black woman. Which yes, is, yes. Which is, Jasmine Jones. And, and which I bring up only because it has been such a, a, a topic of conversation, I think, in the last few months in particular, just about what a tiny, tiny portion of venture capital goes to women and then, of course, to women of color. Absolutely, Ali. And, and these stats are, you know, truly abysmal for the industry. We have a, a commitment at Bread and Butter with a lot of thoughts on every level of the funding stack, how we can be a part of creating change. And one of the things that we've committed to doing and begun doing out the gate is transparently publishing our portfolio company metrics annually. And, you know, happy to do it even more often. Where we sit today specifically on that, we, so we have 36 portfolio companies I mentioned. Um, 43% of our companies have a founder who's a person of color and 30% have a female founder. And so we're, you know, we're proud of the progress that we are making relative to industry benchmarks. We have a goal of continuing to push and improve. When I think about diversity in the, in the field more broadly, it has to be changed, implemented at every level. So starting from who are the LPs or the limited partners who invest capital into our funds? Who are the general partners, people like me, who are in the check writing um, position, who then is in the pipeline, who gets access to pitch venture capitalists and who gets funded? And then once you have your company, right, who is on your management team? Who is on your board? How do we think about, we think a lot about helping our companies recruit, retain talent, um, help source board members, because the excuse can't be, I don't know any women, or I don't know any people of color, right? It's sort of like, if, if that is the honest answer, I would like our answer to be, we've got these amazing five candidates in your sector. Take a look at them. Let's let's have coffee, right? Right. That's great. Um you invest in a it's a it's a broad array of of businesses. How do you decide what what jumps out at you? What are you looking for as an investor? We have a kind of a mantra in our team that we use, which is we invest in team 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 product market traction. And that's that's just a kind of a, a fun way of showing at this early stage. So we invest at pre-seed and seed stage. So quite quite early in the life cycle, it really is indexing, over-indexing on team. And we prefer multi-founder teams just so there's a, you know, a multitude of perspectives and backgrounds and the ability to lift each other up in difficult times. That's we've found been the winning formula. This doesn't have to be the case, but is most like most often the case for for our fund. And then, you know, as far as product and tech, we're looking for that that differentiation, that that new, not just a reorganization of you know, taking market share from competitors or not the fifth app of its kind or service of its kind hit the market. And 
I particularly love to think about the market piece of it. And that's not just the basic things you would think of, of what's the total addressable market, what's my slice of it, but really, is this a market transforming opportunity? And as an investor now, as a venture investor specifically, as opposed to other types of investments, the conversations for us are about who we want to invest in super binary outcomes, meaning this company is either going to be a home home run or it could go to zero and that's okay versus the kind of safe, this might be a single or a double, you know, a safer bet. And that's, it's okay to be again out of your comfort zone because if we pick the right teams who are addressing the right question in, in a big enough market, the actual answer or the, the product itself, the business model may, may change and that's fine. But as long as, again, it goes back to that team, team, team piece. Are there any, um, I realize that, you know, failure is kind of just part of the, it's part of the business that you're in, but are there any mistakes or, or bets that didn't pay off that hang over you that you're like, wow, I really didn't, I really misjudged that one? You know, I think we're very fortunate now. We're still, early, we're still early into the fund life cycle, both for bread and butter and for my own personal investment track record. It's, you know, we're only a few years in. So to date, knock on wood, a hundred percent of our, none of our companies have, have died, have gone to zero. All are actively working on the business. And that's being a great sign this early on. However, I've learned a ton along the way, you know, and, and one, one lesson that I'll share, I've learned the hard way is it's very important at this early stage as, as an investor to also very proactively help the company think about governance, for example. So if you are, if you yourself as the investor are not taking a board seat, make sure you understand, help help founders think about who's going to be, who will be on their boards. And at time, is it the right incentive? Is there going to be pressure to do an early exit? Or what I've seen happen in heartbreaking ways are, you know, I've seen terrific CEOs get actually pushed out of the company because, because they had the wrong board members who wanted to force, you know, early liquidation. And that's not, that's not what venture investing is. We don't expect a return for seven ish years. Right. And I've also seen it happen with companies I haven't invested in. So I'm particularly keen to to work with when I'm meeting companies at the early stage. Tell me about tell me about your board, who's on it now, or how are you thinking about it? Who do you think you want to add so that we can set them up for success from day one, whether or not it's us taking a seat. When you, you see a, a lot of pitches, obviously, um, are you noticing certain trends in terms of the kinds of problems that people are working on? And are they the right problems, you know, or just kind of trends in the types of, of companies? Is it all apps? Is it all, pro- you know, what are you seeing? It's a great question. For us, given we have our three stated focus areas, we can invest, we can and do invest outside of food tech, health tech, and enterprise software. But because those are our, our biggest sectors, I think the majority of deal flow we see are in those categories. So then I think about trends within those categories. So I I focus a lot on our health tech practice, for example. For us, that means the software side of healthcare. So we don't invest in medical devices or pharmaceuticals, not because we don't think there's a ton of um, innovation and value. It's as a seed fund, a smaller seed fund, you're not well capitalized to invest in in companies that require many more rounds of capital that you aren't equipped to, to help support. So on the health tech side, the big themes that, that, that I've seen this year, a ton of companies tackling varieties of offerings in the mental health space. Um, the female health space in general is one that deeply interests me. I've spent a, a lot of time looking at all variations of maternal health, fertility, infertility, 
are, are two of the big sectors within that. Also elder care, aging care. So I, I would say I would phrase that as solutions that target specific subsets of the population. And then we have to figure out both the tech and then the business model, the go-to-market, because everybody's chasing the same the same uh, payers or providers to write the, to, to pay the bill. Right? And so those are some of the themes. But I'm very excited. I think, for example, in mental health, I mean, it couldn't be it couldn't be more relevant. It's finally elevating to the level of national conversation to the point where I think I think there's an interesting opportunity for companies to have a direct to consumer play in this space. If the price point is accessible and you know the solution is right, I, I don't think we have to rely on just the traditional ways of of um, subsidizing healthcare, mental health specifically. And do you think this year ex- accelerates that even more so with the pandemic? One hundred percent, one hundred percent. And I, I look at. Um, you know, anecdotal data from looking at these companies of the, the types of conversions that they're getting, for example, coming from Facebook. So so advertising on Facebook and what are people searching for? And if just the number, it's just an unprecedented amount of interest in, in that topic. Hmm. And and I think that's that's very telling. And But I don't think that that necessarily, that market won't go away once they're out of COVID. So. Right, right. Just sort of accelerates it. Um, so much talk in, in all circles right now about, a, you know, a, a challenging economy being a great time for innovation. And so many big companies come out of, you know, bad economic cycles. Do you see that happening? Do you have confidence that that is how we will look back and reflect on 2020? I do have confidence in that. I do. And I think that is that is the the absolute case historically. And we have, you know, the 2008 economic crisis to look back on when we had Uber and Airbnb and WhatsApp and Instagram and I think the the nature of those types of businesses is a little bit different. You know, it wasn't a global health pandemic per se. And but that actually spoke speaks to me of our desire to be deeply connected when you have all these these social apps emerging. Or, and that was the rise of the sharing economy as well. So I'm very curious, but I, a lot of the themes that I see right now, it may, again, it's probably heavily weighted to the sectors that bread and butter invest in, but I'm seeing, we're seeing so much innovation in food delivery, supply chain, health and safety. We're seeing a big push towards um, supply chains in general, trying to have less international dependency because when things do shut down, you know, we need to have our assembly and manufacturing right here in the United States. And so that, that's come up a lot for, for companies that I've seen on the health tech side, of course, we just talked a little bit about that, but an endless amount of opportunity for innovation across the board there, as well as uh, one thing I didn't touch on is social determinants of health. So how do we even get out in front of these problems and think about housing security, food security, last mile delivery for food deserts. There's a lot of innovation and willingness on the part of governments and others to start subsidizing some of those. And so that's one. Um, On the enterprise software side, my goodness, I mean, the ability to just flip overnight and everybody's a Zoom user or a, you know, a Microsoft Teams or a G Suite or whatever whatever it wasn't before. I have seen so many cool new new apps and new services. I think the question there that I would press on is, you know, make sure that it's really a a business, its own product, a company, not a feature of an existing product, because that's it's it's crowded space when it comes to work workplace productivity. 
But that's an area where we've seen a lot of really interesting companies as well. Sure. So what advice, let's assume that somebody has a good idea, then there's the conveying that. And and as somebody who watches and hears and listens to so many pitches, what advice do you have for founders and for entrepreneurs? Sure. I think it's it's, uh, really important to understand your story, your narrative. And that's and again, because we heavily index on team, you know, I love love to hear. I, and I always ask as the first question if if we don't already get into it, both individual backgrounds, but then the origin story of the company and how. One thing we talk a lot about is founder market fit. You hear a lot about product market fit, but founder market fit. Why is this team specifically the most equipped to tackle this problem? And it doesn't have to. It could be there are a million good answers. Just make sure that your your story is, you know, ready to go on that front. I would say these days, it's so easy to launch a prototype, hack together an MVP quickly, and just immediately put it out there to get real tangible user feedback. That is the most valuable thing about the ability to build and launch companies now versus 10 or 15 years ago. So it's experiment and actually bring that data. The growth speaks more than volumes, more than, you know, than anything else. Um, so when we invest in companies, for example, the majority of our investments do have revenue, are making revenue at the time of investment, but because we're so early, many of them are not. And it is that data that we're looking for, the user engagement data. What is your, what does your churn look like? Why do, why do people leave and specifically why? And what can we learn from that? So I would say engagement, stickiness, growth are the biggest drivers that really start, start to light that fire in the investor's eye. Right. So I'm curious, Mary, we started out with you saying that your parents told you, you know, own your own thing, start a business, you know, be in control of your destiny. You have three and a half year old twins who have two parents who are total overachievers, moving and shaking and making a difference. Um, What will you tell your kids they should do and pursue? It's so fun to think about that. It makes me emotional to think about, you know, because they're so little, but gosh, they'll grow up to be to be what? And just what joy would it give a parent? I think there's no greater joy I could hope for that, than that they find and, and pursue what they're passionate about. And I was I was lucky always to to have that in my parents, even though they they encouraged me, they led by example. They I knew I knew that they would hundred percent support anything that I came home and saying I wanted to do. And same for choosing a life partner, that whoever I you know, loved and believed in, they would love and believe in for me too. So I think that's the only gift I could ever hope to give them. Currently, we're in a major dinosaur phase. So we have two aspiring paleontologists right now. (laughs) A lot of opportunity (laughs) in that field from what I hear. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, so we'll see, but it's, uh, it's just, it's really fun. I think, I think I would say the biggest gift we can give them is exposure and, uh, exposure to as many things as possible and just this belief that that seeing is believing and that you know seeing the fact that um they're they're very much a part of our lives our work lives now because of the pandemic right every as with most families i know are are, and we're not alone in, in grappling with that but they understand they'll come to many of my meetings and also have to just um try our best to get through it i hear a lot this year mommy you have another meeting, so we get another show. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I, I feel I want to feel very bad about that, but I ultimately know that 
we, as everyone else, are we're just trying our best to get through it together. They're resilient, that's for sure. Uh, what is the dinner table like at the Grove household? I just envision you and Steve having these like very high-level discussions about technology and investing and small businesses. Is that what it is? Or is it dinosaurs? That's if we decide to forego dinner and eat dinner at 9 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we do... Uh, we do really try very hard to have, we eat dinner extremely early because we try to have family dinner because we, we both end up, you know, working in the evenings or trading off. And so that's our time. And so it's actually hilarious. I mean, three-year-old's attention span is we're like shoving food in our faces for 15 to 20 minutes. And it's more, it's more dinosaurs, but we try very hard to at least have the tradition of, of sitting together and we'll ask about the favorite part of everybody's day. And um, no, so it's a lot more, it's a lot more dinosaurs, and uh, right now, what else are we into? Batman. <laughs> <laughs> well, that will change, I have no doubt. And you're doing so many great things, and and it's really, uh, it, it, it's really so great that that the two of you have decided to do it all from here. Thank you for sharing so much of your story and so much great advice. And and I know we're going to have to check in with you again soon because I have no doubt that there will be a lot of uh, bread and butter news that we should all be watching for. Thank you so much, Ali. It's always a pleasure. Mary's career trajectory is a great example of how you don't need to be a technologist to make a big impact in technology. How do you teach that, though? What do you tell a classroom of ambitious entrepreneurial students who would love to be venture capitalists one day? Let's go back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. John McVeigh is an associate professor in the entrepreneurship department at the University of St. Thomas. John, so curious what your takeaways were from hearing how Mary talks about technology and investing today. Um, Well, what I loved was the phrase she used that, you know, there is no linear route into, you know, technology venturing. Um, And then she goes on to tell her own serendipitous story. Um, But actually, what I find is her story is illustrative of exactly what we're trying to teach at St. Thomas, which is, we really need to be focusing on not teaching you uh, what to think, but actually teaching you how to think. Hmm. And that might sound glib, but it's actually really important. So I do a great deal of work in the area of digital transformation of healthcare. And there's a great tendency for us to focus on the technology piece on that, thinking it's all going to be a technology. It's all going to turn everything upside down. We all need to learn to be technologists. And... There's a grave danger in that. We see in Mary's story, here was someone with a sociology background. Here was someone with interest in international affairs. She's what what we sometimes call the T-shaped person. She's very deep in one particular area. It almost doesn't matter what. But she also has the ability across the top to collaborate across fields. Now, that's very different than being an I-shaped person. You're just deep in a field, but you're a bit of a geek and you can't talk to anyone else. (laughs) And it's very different than being a generalist just being a dash-shaped person, right? Mm -hmm. So we look for these T-shaped people, and what they can do is they're not technologists themselves. But if you look at, if you you prize apart what she said in the interview, I heard her say what she does is she loves to find new areas where things are happening. And when she sees that, she loves areas that she can dive into deep that she knows nothing about, and she has the skills to learn really fast, to immerse herself and then to do some, some really clever things. 
to ask really great questions, to be really clear about what she doesn't know as well as what she does know, and to focus on getting the right fit between the right people, the right entrepreneurs, and the right environment. Mm -hmm. So those are her critical tasks, I heard her say, for success, how she thinks. How many of those involve technology? None. None of them. Okay. So well, That's good news. Well, it is. It's good news if you believe that critical thinking is something that's never going to go out of date. Mm -hmm. Right? Critical thinking, we need to learn it in new ways. Technology should enable us to teach critical thinking in a new way at a university. We should be able to challenge students with different examples. It will take a different form. But, you know, the thing I learned, I trained as an engineer. And one of the things I learned at college was everything you learn at college, particularly technical stuff, is completely out of date five years after you graduate was the way I was taught to think. And that's what we need to teach our students, not exactly to have this entrepreneurial mindset. And if I, if I prized apart um, another uh, series of principles you can hear in Mary's story, one is you start from where you are. Hmm. You, don't, you, don't, you don't try to start by trying to get somewhere else. You start right where you are with who you know, what you know, and what you can do. And you build out from there. Secondly, probably the most common word I heard in our whole interview was partnership. I reach for partners all the time. I don't think I can do it all myself. I don't think I have to be the expert, but I need to find people with I'm, I'm compatible with. And if I'm not, I need to focus on how can we make ourselves compatible? How can we make ourselves have shared interests? And then the third thing was taking small risks and learning from failure. Right. right. Don't wait and plan, plan, plan until we do a giant experiment. Try something and see. Right. And, you know, with those three principles, starting from where I am, having a curious mindset, loving to dive in and learn deep um, and being excited about learning from failure. Those are the sorts of critical thinking and entrepreneurial skills that will guide our students to success. And, and as she says, make Minnesota a continuing center of entrepreneurship. Yeah, That's absolutely. much more important than being a technological center. We, yes. can, we can import that stuff if we need it. Absolutely. Well, great motivation for the rest of us who'd like to be a little more like Mary. John McVeigh, thank you so much for your time and expertise. And thank you to our sponsor, the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. If you want to know more about the show, go to tcbmag.com slash by all means. And thank you for listening to By All Means. to make By All Means, and we've got some all-stars. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tom Ferlitti. Digital support is Ricky Hannigan and Dan Nepo. Thanks to the University of St. Thomas Senior Media Relations Manager, Vanita Sakar, and Associate Dean of the Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, Laura Dunham, for all their help. Our theme music is by Songfinch. Hope you enjoyed By All Means. By All Means.